Hello and welcome to the next episode of Lost in Criterion. I'm John Patrick Oatari Dorkin, and with me, as always, is a man who often appears as a disembodied apparition in people's hotel rooms. <laughs> I am the Adam Glass, and I'm not the ghost of Elvis. I'm the ghost of an Elvis impersonator. You know, I mean, I kind of assume they all are. I, I have a theory. There was no Elvis. There was only ever Elvis impersonators. Oh, man. Conspiracy goes all the way back to Babylon. Before we get into our movie this week, I do want to talk about Patreon. Oh, patreon.com slash lost in criterion over there for just a dollar a month. You can help keep us going and get access to some bonus content. Oh, yeah. We do a non criterion film on the Patreon, and supporters of one dollar or more get access to those bonus episodes and get to vote on what we're going to do for the bonus episode. Uh, it's one a month, and we put together a list of four movies that are usually themed, and then the fifth movie is always Kazam the 1996 children's movie starring Shaquille O'Neal as a genie. Uh, it's a fun movie that they've made us watch twice, and I'm so glad they've only made us watch yeah. it twice. I, I really, I really am concerned if they ever do decide to do more. I don't think they will. I think they don't want to watch it. They don't want to hear us talk about it. So really, I don't think it'll think ever happen thing. again. But um, yeah, if it does, I don't know what we're yeah. going to do. <laughs> we're going to record a third episode in which we talk about the same thing. Alternatively, we get one of our old episodes, we play it backwards. Ooh, we could just edit edit the two we've already recorded together. Ooh, I like it. Where I like, it feels well, like Well, actually, you know, that's work. an interesting art project where like we you take one of you are represented by a tr- the, one of the tracks from one of the recordings and I'm represented by one of the tracks from one of the other recordings and it makes no goddamn sense at all. That could work. That could work. I mean, it won't work, but it could work. We watch a pretty interesting group of movies over there for that one dollar. Not not that the regular Criterion Collection isn't interesting and eclectic. Uh, I mean, we did just spend six weeks watching <laughs> uh, <laughs> yes, short art films. Amazing. Uh, yeah, Braggage. Yeah, <laughs> I do love Braggage. Uh, but <laughs> I'm glad I don't have to watch Brackage yeah, for a don't... while. I like Brackage a lot. Brackage yeah. is very inspirational to me. I'm glad I'm not going to have to watch Brackage, possibly, until they add another collection to the collection. I right, don't know. right, until there might be a third. Yeah. Yeah, the thing about our bonus episodes is they can't be more eclectic. No, than it's the impossible. Collection. No. They are, they are more pedestrian than the Criterion Collection because we're never going to actively choose to watch something like the Brackage set for a bonus episode. Uh so, you know, it's, it is unfortunately more pedestrian even as we watch stuff that isn't in the Criterion Collection. Uh, you know, like the, um, the documentary on Fred Hampton that we watched isn't, isn't something the Criterion Collection would really ever release. Uh, right. <laughs> you know, um, we do watch, uh, we actually do watch more documentaries over there than we've seen in the, at least percentage-wise, than we've seen in the Criterion Collection. Uh, 
because we like documentaries. Yeah, I, it, it's actually one of the only chances uh, I ever get to watch documentaries because, like, it, you know, frankly, this teats up all of my movie watching time. Yes, indeed. Yes, indeed. But that's all for a dollar a month. For a little above that, five dollars a month uh, for people who can afford to help keep this going uh, in the Sisyphean task. We like to thank those folks on air. So thank you so much to Eric Coronado, Andrew Jarrett, Chris Otto, and Stephen Goldmeyer, our $5 supporters. A little above that, we do something pretty dang special. Pat makes a piece of art based on one of the movies we watched recently. Every month I get that printed up on a postcard and write a little personalized thank you note to our $10 and above supporters. We'd also like to thank those folks on air. Thank you so much to Patrick Yako, Nina Bajnak, Tracy McGrath, Adam Speakerman, and Jason Westhaver, our $10 and above supporters right now. Yes, thank you for justifying really. me buying a CRT TV for some reason. <laughs> Got to make that art, man. Yeah. If you want to check out the postcards and what, what Pat is putting that CRT television to use for, uh, head over to redbubble.com. Search for Lost in Criterion there. You can see past postcards and bypass postcards as well as postcards, greeting cards, stickers, uh, magnets, uh, sometimes pins, uh, yeah. yeah, or you could just you know support us for ten dollars, and then I think that's the better way to go, you. frankly. And then you get the um, you get the note too, and then you don't have to worry about uh, Redbubble taking it away from you. Um, right, right, you know. yeah. Then you you get access to the cards that Redbubble won't allow. Yeah, those are those uh, are the limited the red band. You've got a they're bootleg at this point. You you got to contact this yes, directly indeed. if you want those. Find out what yeah. secrets are behind uh, the Godzilla postcard. Why is it too <laughs> disturbing to be produced for? Mass audiences banned in many uh, as countries. I recall, as I recall, the supporters' response to the Godzilla <laughs> card, you could probably just get one of theirs. Hey. Uh, All right, I stand by the Godzilla card as being one of the greatest oh, things I I've ever it. done. Okay, it is I loved it. so deeply it, upsetting to just look at. It is. It is very upsetting. Uh, anyway. Thank you so much to everybody who supports us through Patreon, to everyone who's ever purchased anything from the Redbubble, and thank you to you for listening. Thank you. Pat, this week we're back to a Jim Jarmusch movie. Love a Jim Jarmusch yeah. movie. This time it is 1989's Mystery Train, his ode to Memphis. This one, interesting. We we talked briefly, I think, in our last Jim Jarmusch movie about how eventually... Uh, he became very big in Japan, big enough in Japan that JVC, the electronics conglomerate, uh, started producing his films. Uh, this is the first movie that JVC produced of his. Uh, so we've got that. Uh, just it's very weird to me that JVC. Yeah, I don't know. The There's, movie. I, I, I. Someday I will. I'm sure there has got to be a book about this somewhere out there, and I should read it. But yeah. like, I don't know. I Jim Jarmusch has like a really, uh, like, odd relationship with Japan. I don't know how to describe it. Like, he talks about it in the in the bonus features on this, and like, yeah. it didn't it didn't illuminate for anything for me other than the fact that he, like many people likes a, a bit of Japanese writing that is just hot garbage. <laughs> like, it's, cause it's like what you find. Like when you was like, what should I read to learn about like Japanese, like, you know, historical yeah. culture, you find this book and I, we're not going to talk about it cause I've talked about it multiple times, but it's just like, I can't hold it against him cause it's what everybody ends up being told they should read. And it's just the most hot garbage piece of writing in the history of mankind. It just, it's, and it's uh, yeah. here we go. But no, yeah, he's got a an odd relationship with Japan. Uh 
Yeah. Uh, the weirdest the weirdest part of the JVC deal to me is that they basically they gave him two point eight million dollars, which is much more than he had ever had to make a movie before. Right. Uh, and let him retain complete editorial control and creative control. Uh, so it's just very weird that like JVC just like threw money at him. Yeah. Well. <laughs> w- w- yeah. I mean. Um, what year was this? I, I've lost track. Um, 89. Yeah. Uh, so, it was shot in the summer of 88, so that deal would have been Yeah, you know, I mean, it is, that, so. you know, um, it, I think that, uh, let me check something here, but, like, that should be prior to the, um, the sort of the collapse of the Japanese uh, economy. So JVC would have been, yeah. f- like, hyper-flush in capital. It, it, it was still in the, it was in the, in the, in the, um, heyday of the uh of the japanese economic bubble where the japanese governments japanese like companies just had money to burn and we're just like throwing it around all over the place you know and so it it as weird as it's not kind of makes sense to me that that in the late 80s a japanese uh giant company would be like hey we'll just give you millions of dollars to go like do whatever we want our name attached to this cool thing. But, yeah, I guess. Yeah, I, I mean, know. the bubble burst They've later. Doing... I mean, the bubble burst after that, and then, yeah. like, all the cash just, like, disappeared. So I'm looking. They sponsored Arsenal, the British football club. Sure. Uh, <laughs> from 81 right. to 99. So they were, already, they were already doing that sort of thing. Uh, it's actually surprising that they continue to sponsor that late into the 90s, actually, to me. But. Right, right, right. Uh, they also started to sponsor the Aberdeen Football Club uh, in the late 80s, um, but that only lasted a few years. And they sponsored the World Cup from 82 to 2002, which makes a little more sense. Yeah, to I mean, sponsor the national organization or the international competition than a team on the other side of the country or on the other side of the world. But, right. But whatever. Uh, Interesting. JVC has also been a sponsor of the massively multiplayer online game Rise, the Via no, Via Neo Province. Since I have no idea what that. <laughs> I, I have no idea. What what I feel like you're just talking in like in like tongues to me now. But yeah, sure. I, you know, I it mean, it's, it's a you know, it's 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 it is what it is. It's right? a space. It's a space MMO. Okay. Yeah, I yeah, mean, you one know of those. Them handing I, my the what, the point being that like them handing Jim Jarmusch a bunch of money to like sp- sounds weird, but at the same time, kind of makes sense to me. But like, yeah, I don't know. It, it's interesting that like this is what they got for their money, <laughs> right? Like so, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. The background on this is really interesting too because Jarmusch just hadn't written the script until he got to Memphis, like. Came to Memphis, decided, oh, I got to make a movie, uh, and started writing the script. Uh, and just really, you know, from from watching the movie, you know, I don't know a lot about Memphis, but we've got commentary from from people in one of the background materials that you know that he really captured uh, the speech patterns, at least very accurately. Um, so good on him. Uh, I don't, I like, I like the Jarmusch stuff we've seen. Oh, it's, 
it's always sort of about, sort of about the same thing. It's always about yeah. I'm trying to remember like so we've seen Down by Law, we've seen who Stranger feels, Than Paradise. Yeah. We've, what else have we seen? What else have we seen? Have we seen anything else? Uh, the Night on Earth was also oh him. right the right, taxi right, yeah yeah there's a postcard for yeah. that if you're interested there is there is um but down by law we've got Roberto Benigni's character who is an Italian living in the U.S. whose obsession with uh, American culture is fairly limited within the movie to you know he keeps that notebook of American idioms and, right. and you know writes down every new one he encounters um we've got Stranger Than Paradise, which is about a Hungarian woman uh, who's obsessed with screaming Jay Hawkins' song, I Put a Spell on You. Uh, and we've got this, which has three different, well, four. Uh, to say three counts the couple as one person, which isn't fair. <laughs> so four, four different uh, uh, foreign visitors. Uh, in Memphis, uh, and each story sort of focused on them. Uh, it's, you know, generally, or it is about the foreign relationship, the non-American relationship to American pop culture, right. but also usually about like a specific aspect of pop culture right. that's not the general pop, you know, Elvis, obviously. Is pretty general pop. Big. I mean, like that's the thing, right? <laughs> yeah, that's the interesting thing about this, right? Is that like, um, they're they're all sort of co- part of it. It seems to be coming them all sort of coming to terms with like where Elvis in a very like gen- like a light way where Elvis fits into the sort of scheme of a ver- of American uh, like blues and rock and and it's yeah it's it's. It's interesting because they all have a slightly different take on his sort of position in it in one way or the other, right? Like, um, but like also like it that sort of is mostly a background noise to their their actual stories, right? Like it's there, but like it, it's not what their their main focus is on, right? Uh, right. It's more about how they are, yeah. in, in many ways, just how they are navigating a very short period, window of American life, right? Like some, because mostly what they're doing is interacting with other people who, in various ways, accommodate, but also fail to accommodate the fact that they are not native, like native to this place, right? Um. Yeah, yeah. The. The Japanese couple, obviously, you know, she is obsessed with Elvis. He is obsessed with Memphis rock outside of Elvis, right? Right. You know, uh, yeah. She wants to see Graceland. Yeah, they. Um. Uh. uh who's he? Who does he keep bringing up? Because the the guy at the end brings up. I've, I now my brain's blown. Carl Carl Perkins. Yeah, Carl Perkins. Like the interesting thing is, yeah. is I I found them to be obviously you know I mean I found them to be an interesting like sort of subject matter. Uh, they were. All three subjects are interesting subjects. I would say that the last one is my least one I'm least interested in it because it feels the most generic. Yeah. Like the first two both have a really uh, an interesting sort of um niche that niche that they fall into, right? They've they've got a an, a view their interaction and relationship to American society is strange. 
and 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 so is is interesting to watch whereas the third one because this person has essentially attempted to integrate themselves into american society it's just their their outsiderness is no longer really that relevant to what's going on anymore right Um, that's fair yeah i mean he's Um, had a job he is he was he he's there for some because of somebody else in theory but like he has essentially integrated himself he can complain about it and be like oh you americans blah 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 but in the end he is doing he is doing american like right throughout the whole right. thing and his and his outsiderness is uh exasperated not not because people are playing on his britishness but because people are calling him elvis when he'd rather be called carl perkins right exactly Jr. exactly yeah and like, you're gonna if you're going to uh, if you're going to lessen me to just a pop culture reference, uh, you know, there's a lot of things I could call him to other him as uh, British that they don't. Right? No one really cares. Right? That it's he's not. British. It's not relevant. Whereas, yeah. It, yeah, and so his being an outsider is not really relevant because he's not really isn't one anymore. He's been here for long enough that he he's integrated himself. Right? But both the other two yeah. group, like the the other two stories in many ways hinge on them being not familiar with the yeah. place that they are right that they, they, like not just like it's it's both the, the culture and the society but also even just the place is you know right to, not normal for them they don't understand well, it fully johnny's johnny's issue is that he is losing those anchors right he has to america right Right, his uh, job. Girlfriend has left him, his, and he just lost the job. Right, right. and and that's understandable. And then, but like those things yeah. can, ha- and and those things are more dramatic for him because he is an outsider, in in a lot of ways. Yeah, but they are not dependent on him right. being an outsider. They they happen. Yeah. They literally happen to other people all the time who aren't outsiders. Right, right. But it is, it is, you know, it's forcing him back into a transience that he doesn't want. Whereas right. our our other two stories focus on uh, two other types of transience, right. right? Not of integration uh, pulled away, stripped away, uh, but on you know the first one is is tourist, and the second one is really just a passing through, right? In grief. It, like yeah, right. totally. It, it, it's my my point. I'm just sort of getting to in the end is the fact that like, um, in the end, uh. Johnny's could just be you could take out him being British and the story would in no way fundamentally change. You know what I mean? Like that right. that's I a story th- I have seen many times before. Right. Right? I think that's I think that's fair. I also think there's a point to Johnny being British. And the character was written for Joe Strummer. I understand so, that. Jarmusch, yeah. So, so in in as much as it interacts with the other foreignness of the other characters, you know, I will go back and say again, he is someone who is being having his uh, integration stripped away from him. So, uh, yeah, I don't know. We don't need to dwell on it, but <laughs> but he. Well, he I does think it's one of the key. Import- I think now. at the same time, it is one of the yeah. key sort of uh, sort of contrast points is, between the other characters. Yeah. 
he's also doing things to actively make his transience worse right? Uh, over the course of, you know, he's in a downward spot. Well, right oddly now. enough, though, depending uh, on the situation, it may not make his transient in, in, in a one really fucked up sense. He may become far more permanent in the United States than he ever intended to <laughs> as a result of his actions. That is fair. Uh-huh. Uh, yeah. So, I mean. That is fair. Yeah, I don't know. It's it's interesting. Like I, you know, if we sort of like go through each of the stories, it I I find it they're all they're all interesting. I I like the middle one the best. The the middle one's my favorite one, actually. Yeah. Um, I don't know. I it, it somehow resonated the most. Like sort of, I mean, like I talked about just literally going on a business before we started this. I did. A, I took a business trip this like the day before we're recording this, and like. Her experiences there of being like kind of just adrift, not by your own choosing, is so right, so familiar to me in my life. Like I've done that more than I've done any of the either. You know, in some ways, right? Johnny's is sort of like should be the one that I, that resonates, but like I've never, I try not to lose it. Right? Like we all people who are living in another country and trying right. to survive. Your one of your major goals in life is to not lose it. Because it's essential yeah. to your continued existence to not lose it. You know what I mean? Right. You don't have and, to lose it a lot is. to suddenly lose everything, right? Um, right, right. And he's he's really losing it a lot. Right, right. Yeah. Uh, I mean, like, yeah. but like hers is so interesting because, like, it's one that I've just been through so many times where, like, you'll be in a place and your purpose for being there has essentially come and gone. And now you're just in that place yeah. until you can leave that place is a very fascinating sort of transient state to be in right right but she was never you know she's never even tied to memphis right, right? she's traveling through right uh you know the plane right, was diverted right. so she has zero ties to this space except that is the place she finds that she has to sleep in right well and uh, that's and one yeah but like the, the experience is very similar like you know i go places for work yeah. fairly often and i it is quite right. often that i will find myself in a place I've done whatever I need. She doesn't have any reason to be there at all, but like I've where I've done everything I need to do in this place. And it's like, Oh, I have another half a day or another day or even another day and a half of being in this place for no fucking reason other than like traveling is weird. And you sometimes just have to be in places for like a day at a time. Uh, And you're like kind of just like wandering around, but like doing shit, like buying a bunch of magazines at a, fucking newsstand like i've done shit like that where you're just like i don't know like what can i do to entertain myself today like i gotta kill a day um yeah well to be fair she wasn't buying the magazines to entertain herself she was buying the magazines uh you know her story is very interesting because so much of it is uh it's just a a single woman trying to survive in a strange city Mm -hmm. and and for facing all the all the menaces that pop up as being a single woman. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, in a strange that part's city, not familiar you know, to me. Or even obviously. in a not strange city, right? <laughs> yes, of course. That is something you don't have any personal experience right. with. <laughs> right. Um, but yeah, you know, it's, it's the pushy news store clerk, uh, you know. And she's, you know, she's half-hearted letting letting these things be silly and happening to her well and not. and she's she's rapidly discovered a thing that you'll discover if you have you know she has a a good amount of money and yes. and has discovered that it you know a thing that you discover when you're in these sort of situations are like wow like just spending money will make a lot of shit just like go away 
You can just right, make right, this right. not be a problem anymore if you just give people money. Yeah, un- unfortunately, what she also discovers is if you pay the wrong person to go away, uh, it comes back that they just want more money right, that's, or yeah, something that's else. Also true, yeah. Uh, yeah, where uh, you know Tom Newhan's co- character comes back and is very menacing to her, which yeah. is what leads her to end up in the hotel. Um, interesting that you, you've talked the least about uh, the Japanese couple so far. Well, I mean, I figure uh, we're going to get, get there. That one's interesting because, yeah. like, it's a very familiar, like, I don't know. Like, it in some ways it trucks in... It's interesting to me. I, I, I'm, I'm still torn on it as a story. Uh, they're fascinating characters. It trucks in yeah. in things that you could almost classify as stereotypes of of, of Japanese people. Uh, that make me a little bit nervous to like fully deal with it. Like, I, I'm torn on that one. It, it's interesting. They're interesting people. I... I wonder if in 89, uh, a young person, a Japanese young person's obsession with American rock and roll was necessarily a stereotype at that point. Well, at least in the U.S. Here's the th- Yeah. Well, that's that's not necessarily. So this is where it gets interesting. This uh, see, this is why this one's going to be hard to talk about. And I'm not super keen to talk yeah. about it too much. But like we have to, obviously. But. The thing is, is that like okay, so rockabilly is a is an ongoing fashion concern in Japan, right? Yeah, it's, it has existed. It's existed since the fifties. It still exists here now. Um, it is, I love. I'm sorry, your use of the word concern there makes me <laughs> makes it sound like something the government is trying to solve. <laughs> it uh, might be. But, I you know. Yeah. I mean, it certainly certainly was in the fifties. Um, right. But like the thing about it is, is like it waxes and it wanes in popularity. But like. You know how I I have to wonder about something because I'm not as integrated into American society as I have been in the past. Um, like fashion, like certain fashion trends in America just essentially evaporate and disappear completely, right? Like they'll just kind well, of I, disappear into the ether. I don't think any of them exist? ever disappear completely, right? And I think there is still some subculture that still exists know, connected to right? them somewhere. But like, and but so they certainly disappear out of the public eye, and that they do too here. Um, the thing is, is like you'll find out, like if you dig around enough, that like, oh, like this subculture is still going on, and there's a whole group of people who are dedicated to it, and have, in some ways, sort of shaped their lives around its core essence. Uh, and something like mm-hmm. rockabilly or something, you you see, there's there's a whole. S- suite of them there's hundreds thousands millions probably an infinite number essentially uh of of sort of fat aesthetic subcultures that that thrive here and and this one is i am certain it was still happening in the 80s it made me when i first encountered it, it made me feel like oh perhaps somebody was involved in the writing who was maybe familiar who was maybe a little bit older who was more familiar with like maybe an older aesthetic that was thriving in an earlier time in Japanese history. And then I started thinking about it more and I was like, well, but I bet that that subculture is still, if not thriving, it still has, has a, has a foothold somewhere. Yeah. Uh, one, one, I bet it still exists Two, I think it's less, 
obviously the particularities of this couple's obsession play into the movie. But I don't think Jarmusch is saying something broader about Japanese society. No, that's not actually what I was going to get into. That's not what I meant in yeah. like trucking in some things that I would consider yeah. sort of stereotypes. And then, but the same time might be something you consider sort of accurate at the same time. It, that's why it gets kind of uncomfortable yeah. is like these, the, the theme, the, the purposeful themed trip to engage with your subculture is a thing that happens. People do yeah. a lot and not just in, in, in Japan, but in a lot of countries, but Japanese people in my experience tend to be more willing to follow through on that and actually take that trip. Than a lot of the Americans I know, at least. Yeah, and I, I think it's just there's some there's just a little bit more willingness to be like, oh, I've always wanted to take this trip about X, and maybe that's the only overseas trip you could ever afford to do. Maybe you only can do it once, right? But you've always and wanted to, seen, and you you end up doing it. Yeah, we've seen that pop up not just not just generally in in pop culture things or or you know talk of like paris syndrome or something like that which is usually talked about as particular particularly japanese disillusionment with right, with yes, paris yeah. uh um but we've seen it pop up in in other films we've watched yeah, yeah. Uh, and 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 that's why yeah. I, i'm a bit like kind of like don't know where to land on this one in that essence they feel real to me they feel yeah, like, I oh, think it's and especially in 89, 88, 89, when, again, money is just flush. Yeah. A, a trip to America to a... just kind of fuck around and go visit all the rock sites you wanted to see seems like a thing people would right. do, like, for real. Yeah. Um, yeah. Where I fall apart is, like, and, and, and every part of that seems real, it seems... They so like they're just but like I kind of like I don't know they're 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 interesting characters but I don't know what to say about them as in the end. yeah I I think that uh, obviously you know what I said earlier this is Jarmusch doing something he does with non American characters a lot uh, you know in other works uh, but also. I think looking at the American pop culture landscape at the time, the Japanese obsession within American pop culture of the of the late eighties into the nineties is with like Yakuza bad guys. So, you know, this is also a portrayal of uh, a Japaneseness that is different to Right, the yeah. Japanese-ness I mean certainly for America the audience often, that Jeremy is like yeah. inherently talking yeah. to uh and right. I and I think I wonder partially, you know, he's being sponsored by JVC and stuff. Like you, ha- you have to wonder, like, okay, to a certain extent, he doesn't want to just talk about like the most generic thing, yeah. that every American's going to talk about when they're like, oh, this Japanese couple came over. So he picks a a subculture that right. is maybe engaging yeah. with something he thinks is least- interesting anyway. Yeah, at least it is a subculture that exists. And yes, he's absolutely. not just portraying them this yeah, way because he didn't he just make them up. Yeah, something. they didn't. Yeah. I mean, right? They're they're interesting in that like they do feel a bit young. But again, I've I've lived here. I you know I came here much later than this movie, right? So it's hard for me to yeah. like time rewind my mind about like well the people I know who are into this kind of thing now, how old would they have been in 1988? Right, you know what right. I mean? Like it's it's kind of hard to do that in your head. 
Uh, because this is definitely, I would say, while it's, it is an ongoing subculture, my experience is that it does, the ones I've met, and I could live out in the countryside, so I don't know, really, have been a little bit on the older side because yeah, a lot of them got into it in the 50s or 60s. And so obviously there yeah. are young people I mean, engaged with it, but they would, right. but somebody from the fifties or sixties would only have been like in their thirties. And that's yeah. obviously these characters these people, are younger than that, but nonetheless, right. these people are meant to be about 18. So, you know, they're second, second generation. Right. Exactly. And that's, of, and, but like by that. now but, that, those same characters would be, you know, in their, what would be in their fifties. Right. It's, it's hard to do this right. in your head. Right. Like, 10, so it's like hard to like place us. yourself yes. in time like that way. Um, what I think is most interesting is that, like, my again, this is just from personal experiences. People, like, the fact that they've entered into such a sort of what I consider a scary traveling arrangement is what's most sort yeah. of like nerve wracking for me because that's just like right. I can't. Their traveling arrangement, it just for me as a, on a personal level, feels so terrifying. Yeah. <laughs> like, yeah, there's no it's plans. On the one hand. Uh, the ability to have these obsessions and to travel to America suggests middle class backgrounds. Oh, of course. That we don't necessarily then see them exhibit. But they definitely. Uh, it's a unlike, Yeah. Yeah, but also unlike Louisa, they aren't throwing money around. They they don't seem to have a lot of money. No, you know, they're trying to. They're trying to bargain on the hotel room, which doesn't work. <laughs> well, they're clearly that's clearly meant. There's to a be, language barrier. Yeah, but, that's also clearly yeah. to me to be like travel like guidebook language right like yes, they're just like yes absolutely geez. absolutely um but the, the thing about it is is like and then again like i only have my own personal experiences but i've i have very rarely met anybody in my life here who would engage in that deeply of a terrifying traveling experience oh yeah without yeah. planning anything yeah. it's like i don't know they're right they're they feel odd to me from they that are, perspective but that's me right like i don't know everybody they are they are young and fearless yeah uh, and and unlike Luisa's experience, they they do not have anything that should make them fearful uh, until maybe the gunshot at the end. But also, even in that, they're just like uh, it's America, right? Yeah. Um, well, that's yeah. yeah that's they're just yeah. very yeah. They're just very accepting of the risks that they have taken, right? That they, well, they and they seem to be into. able to like do accomplish what they said because we we leave them before they actually yeah. go to Graceland, but they got to Graceland, they saw Graceland, right, right. they got on the train, yeah. so it all worked out. But you know, it's just even now thinking about it because like I send a lot of students to America for school, and like the yeah. idea of any of them traveling in this way terrifies the shit out of me. It's like please Absolutely. at Absolutely. least plan what hotel you're going to stay in before you get there. Just yeah. do that at least. Yeah. Well, it's also very, you know, this is this is an instance in seeing their travel, you know, and in their first few lines of conversation, it's very uh, subtle digs at American train infrastructure. Right. You know, talking about, you know, it'll, time time goes more slowly in America. Well, it's not actually time that goes more slowly. It's just the trains that go more slowly. In right. America. Well, and, and also, <laughs> like, it's very clear in as a part of a joke there. Um, yeah, she's actually the Did one you? who's adjusted to the correct time for America, and he has not. Like, right, she, right. he's jet lagged, doesn't know what fucking day it is, what time it is. <laughs> right, she right, does, right, but right. she's yeah. they're they're in a they're in a very you know a, a pretty classical relationship dynamic of like he's 
cool and tough and yeah she's and clearly the one who actually has got her shit together but like right, you know right it's got to be yeah. cool and tough and they're they're very cute together no, they, it is um, it's, it's all very cute yeah did you did you clock there's one there's one really great background thing with the train that i really loved i had to rewind to make sure i was oh, looking I didn't. at it right as the as the train is pulling away from them after they get off yeah. on the platform uh one of the last cars uh, doesn't even have a door, just a piece of plywood. Oh, really? Like, yeah, yeah. Wow. It's, I don't, I don't know. It, you know the the background material suggests that that train station was abandoned, which doesn't surprise me. Uh, so maybe, maybe they're just using. I, I don't imagine JVC bought them a train to use. No, but, no, no. But maybe the one they can rent for production is is pretty rundown. Period. But, but yeah, it's just got a piece of plywood where the door should be. That's, it's set back a little bit. That, that is hilarious. Yeah. Well, yeah. And, and the funny thing is um, their experience on a, on the American train system it mirrors my experience with be, traveling on the American, what, ex, what still remains of the American train system with my Japanese colleagues, where it's like, why does this work this way? Why is anything like this? It's like, because <laughs> it's no longer like a really a, a thing that ha- exists anymore. You're just riding on like the bones of some dead animal at this point basically right right yeah um another instance with them uh that i found interesting uh wikipedia brings up as uh uh with a critique from from bell hooks um or a comment from bell hooks uh which is you know bell hooks comes up so so rarely in our in our criterion talk um but when they go into the train station and then they have that short interaction with the man who asked for a light and uh, we set up the, the brick joke that will pay off as matches with the matches later on because um, uh, he's asking for a match. Right. Uh, but then uh, then he thanks them in Japanese uh, and they're very, you know, she's very excited right. to encounter someone who speaks Japanese. Um, but... Uh, but Wikipedia points out that that Bell Hooks uh, cites that interaction uh, as one of the few examples of nuanced, deconstructive, and subversive treatments of blackness in American film. Uh, that's the only sentence we get from <laughs> from <laughs> on it. It's not even a direct quote, um, but it is. You know, it, it's the first the first character we see them interacting with. Period. So the first American we see them interacting with, but also you know, he's an African-American in Memphis. Uh, he's just some guy sitting at a rundown train station. Uh, and then he thanks them in Japanese. It, it suggests a, a broader world than yeah, yeah, absolutely. we would assume from other film portrayals of blackness, certainly. Right. That's where it's subversive, indie, constructive and nuanced is that he speaks Japanese and that they have, they, you know, these characters, you know, despite everything you just talked about, how they should be constantly in danger. That right. is not They're a thing not, that Jarmusch yeah. portrays them as ever. No, no. Being I in. mean, and I'm not even uh, talking about them being necessarily in danger as much as like yeah. going to a place with no plan is just fucking a scary yeah. thing. No, to it's do. just dumb. Yeah. It's just dumb. You don't do it's it because not because do. it's like necessarily yeah. inherently dangerous yeah. as much as it is like why? <laughs> like why not at least yeah. know where you're going? You know what I mean? But, like have a fucking map or something. But it can be dangerous, and we it see that danger pop up in Luisa's story. Right, right. But 
Oh. Uh, but we don't, we noticeably don't see it here. Uh, they are just people in love with this culture and this culture accepts them, right? Without, right. without and, question. Well, and, and, it's, really. and it's interesting how they have to engage with it, right? Like they go to, to yeah. the, 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 the Sun Recording Studio, right? And they're yeah. able to join a tour, right? And the tour is obviously hyper overwhelming, right? Like they can't gleam right. any actual like data from it because it in no way is set up to accommodate non-native English speakers in any right. capacity, right? I uh, mean, listen, that the tour guide with her accent and her her speaking speed, it's not really even set up to accommodate northerners. Uh, so, right, like, I guess that's true. I yeah, I mean like yeah. you know, but like in the end, what I mean though, yeah, well, exactly. But that's also part and parcel of the same thing, right? Like, it's a tour yeah. set up very insularly, right? Like, it it, it only bear yeah. it only considered the possibility that like, who would want to come see this? Well, other other people who are into this from where we are from, you know, like it's it's just interesting because they they get done with it and she's like, oh, that was exhausting, and like she's right, it is exhausting. <laughs> And it would right, be right. incredibly exhausting if you don't, you know, the more you, the more disengaged you are from the language, the more that exhausting it is. So, like, they're getting to see the places that they they that are important to them and they admire, but they they can't. There's a barrier to how much they can engage with it because it's not really. Right. No one has ever made it intended for them uh, in yeah. that way, and and they are, you know, they're they're interacting with American pop culture in in a deeper way than a complete facade but still in in the facade of whiteness right right the, you know the even the as they argue who's who's the the better rock musician it's elvis versus another white guy right right, right. uh you know and and they go to sun records which is where Elvis got to start, where Johnny Cash got to start, you know, blah, blah, blah. And Sun Records, uh, you know, is one thing that's brought up in the bonus features, if you watched all of them. Uh, <clears throat> you know, Sam Phillips of Sun Records had a bunch of black artists signed. Uh, and then once he started signing those big white names, dropped all the black artists. And that's why Stax Records right. exists. And Stax Records doesn't give that historical preservation. There is now a Stax Records Museum. But well, I mean, Jim Jarmusch talks about like yeah. their, their original recording area or whatever was torn down like a year after they right after they went yeah. there, right? Like they they the, walk by it, yeah. and the, the only stacks, way they could identify it was the right. graffiti on the wall that somebody had bothered. Had, right, somebody, yeah, very basically helpfully had put on the side of the fucking building that like <laughs> right. lets you right. know that this is yes. an important place. Someone, someone very much not in the. uh structure of memphis historical society or government wanted people to know well, that's, that what I, that's what that's what i mean is like you get into yeah. something that almost amounts to like community preservation saying like <laughs> yeah like gorilla pr- community yeah, exactly preservation you're not too. going to acknowledge <laughs> that this place is this place we're going to make it so it's yeah. impossible to not know that when you walk by and that's you know an- another thing that i think these characters really pull is the show is that 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 whiteness is a mask that continues to exist. Right. Right. Yeah. That sun, sun is preserved. Stax is not, at least in the time of the film. Right. There's been moved to go back now and, and fix those errors. 
that we see in the bonus features and can see today. Using the Japanese characters are interesting that way because they're obsessed with this culture, but they're obsessed with the part of it that was imported into Japan, which is very telling yeah. when you talk about like how exactly culture entered in, like these parts of culture entered into Japan and which ones were imported and which ones weren't, and like who was making those decisions, how were those decisions made. It, it's yeah. very it, it speaks to something much deeper that the movie doesn't have time or space to engage with, right. but is is underlying as yeah. a part of it. But it, interesting to me is that it's also something that Jarmusch is engaging with in the soundtrack. Right, like, right. Yeah. When when we're first introduced to those characters, we open with Elvis's version of Mystery Train, and then we close with Junior Parker's version of Mystery Train. Of you know, of the black artist who co-wrote that song and sold it to Elvis. No, I know Sam Phillips. Sam Phillips of Sun Records is the other guy who, who you know, wrote that song. Uh, another indication of you know the the history of black white collaboration within Sun Records, uh, even as Phillips kicked off a lot of his contracted singers. Uh, Sun still famously maintained. African American session musicians in a way that, you know, one could argue was good integration and one could argue was bad integration <laughs> because it is integration where it was used to promote the white artists moving forward. Right. But yeah, you know, the, the soundtrack of this is, is in love with Memphis in a way that, uh, you know, these characters at least are not exactly in love with Memphis, but should be, you know. Right, and and they, probably they could easily pivot to the right stuff. Right, would well, yeah. and that's the thing, right? And probably would be if ever given that exposure, right? Like, right, and and that's right. the thing, right? Is that we start to talk about where the Memphis's place in 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 history and what it looks like, right? Like, Memphis could be the place where they get exposed to that stuff, but the, yeah. but but as you talked about the city government of Memphis and all these other. Things are aligned in a way to ensure that that's not what they are introduced to when they get here, right? But they could have been, right? right? Like, this could be a place where they come to go to Graceland and see Sun Records, and then they learn about a whole new universe. Yeah. But that's not what the whole system wants them to do, right? Like, I I wonder what the state of the Lorraine Hotel was in 89. You know, obviously the Lorraine Hotel now is a civil rights museum. That's, you know, uh, for, for context, if, if listeners don't know, the Lorraine Hotel is where Martin Luther King Jr. was assassinated right. in Memphis um, <clears throat> and is now a museum. And, and that comes up in the bonus features, too. And I'm very happy that it comes up in the bonus features, particularly when that bonus feature started and we're with the, the white guy who was with the production talking about Sun Records and talking about the, the restaurant. Um, <laughs> and then and I'm like, oh, I don't I don't really want to hear this. But then we actually get, you know, people from Stacks and people and, and this guy from the Civil Rights Museum. Uh, and I was much more engaged at that point. <laughs> but uh, but yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, it's just, you know, they they come to Memphis, they make this pilgrimage to Memphis uh, in love with the music, but we are sort of left with the soundtrack and the other things going on to recognize that this is a facade of whiteness, right. really. Part of what Jeremish is doing, though, is, is choosing, until we get to the third one, is choosing outsiders who are 
outside enough that like yeah. we're not necessarily talking about them in the same way that we would talk about like pe- yeah. white people from Memphis. Johnny Johnny is also obsessed with a certain type of American culture. Now we can also chalk up that you know British culture also became obsessed in in the same sort of rockabilly right. ways as Japan did, right? Um, and and produce their own music in that in that genre in that culture um, of rock and roll. You know, uh, Luisa is is the different one there. And then it's very interesting that Luisa gets to be the only one who actually has the the Presley sighting, right? Uh, she she gets the dream of of Elvis Presley's right. ghost showing up. Uh, very confused about how he was meant to meet meet somebody. You know, well, she's an implication of the, the story about the comb. Care, right? Right, right. She's she absolutely the, the, doesn't care. She barely knows. Right, right exactly. <laughs> yeah. Like the others are all there. You know, in the third one with with uh, right. with Johnny, you know, he doesn't like Elvis right. per se. And we, but like, and he's we don't very know well why he that. ended up there. Right, but he, yes, he knows he he knows whereas, who Elvis is. Whereas she's like there. completely an outsider in the sense that like she could care less. She's not here for yeah. this, and that makes her her sighting of Elvis sort of more supernatural, right? Because like, it doesn't yeah. make any goddamn sense. Yeah. Right, right. Um, one last note on on June and Misuko before we really jumped into Luisa's story. Um, tipping the bellhop with uh, with a plum with a plum. Yeah. Uh, uh, just reminded me of the very worst tip I ever got while I worked at the, at the Western Hotel here <laughs> was uh, was an Australian woman who uh, didn't tip at all during the two weeks she was staying there and then gave everyone uh, like tourist keychains. Right. Like I got well, one that so... was like bubble plastic around a picture, you know, a, a drawing right. of the Sydney Opera House. Yeah. I <laughs> mean, I got to say, though, that. But listen. Stuff like that, though, is also kind of what makes me feel just a little bit my skin a little itchy about them as characters in the it movie. Is, you can it is, go ahead. The movie does not point out that uh, either our Japanese characters or or Luisa as Italian do not come from tipping cultures, right? right? But but the that's also what makes my skin out. itchy about it. Is yeah okay, and like I can explain it like. This in these points, it very much feels like it was written by Jim Jarmusch, who doesn't actually yeah. is not Japanese, does not understand yeah. what it is like to be a Japanese person traveling in the United States or or even an yeah. Italian necessarily traveling in the United States. Like, here's the thing. They are coming to. I have never met a Japanese person who is not aware that Americans tip and actually right. have to right. engage with it like as a. Well, how much am I supposed to give? Is the yes. question they're asking. They're and never that is, giving and out that is, plums. That is my that is my experience with 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 Japanese people who have stayed in hotels uh, when I when I you know served them uh, was uh, well, what would be appropriate here? Yes, uh, you know, and, that, and that's hard to know because that's very culturally yeah. de- like. That's cultural right. knowledge, right. right? They'll look it up on the internet or whatever, and the internet's always and it's, uh, that's not the internet at the time. They would buy right. a book, a guidebook. Yeah, and being someone you know working in that position, it's also uh, it's not a question you can really answer right. easily without 
you know, sounding like an ass. Right. right? And, and but uh, like, you and know. you get into this weird sort of thing. They, they legitimately, the person asking wants, needs you to answer because there's no right. way they could need possibly you know that, that answer. Right. Yeah. Because there's no way to right. know it. Right. But like, that's where I'm talking about. Like it, in the end, their character feels like a Japanese couple written by a, by Jim Jarmusch who yeah. like cares. He's not trying to, He's he's trying to do a good right. job, but and no one's going to and they're not going to tell him that he's wrong about what would happen in this situation because that would not be what would happen. And it's little well, things. That's... There's little things that exist in there that seem I have like I have to describe as being just a little odd that yeah. happened. And I imagine yeah, the if you're Italian that, and you watch the that you experience this, you would experience somebody would experience something similar of like. This feels just like one degree off the mark. Like just, just the, right. this the knob right. has just turned slightly off the listen, off the dial. Listen, everything's meant to be one degree off. It's a comedy, but also I get your point and I understand. Uh, but, to hear yeah, Jarmusch yeah. describe it, though, he did. He wrote the script and then gave it to the translators and the actors. And allowed them to make it more natural. To, well, they made it more natural for vernacularly speaking, work. right? They had he had to translate it, and yes. they were allowed to alter, right. The like the words right. they're they saying. They're not necessarily allowed to, right? They're they not allowed probably, to alter the action. They the don't probably want. They probably no one would feel comfortable. Like actually, your script is wrong. No one would ever do that, right? Um, eh. I mean, I'm just saying, like it that one, but it's like there's just a few little things like that where I'm like. This feels strange, and I know it's a yeah, comedy, but like when you sh- when it's strange and it trucks in something kind of that feels like like it might have been a stereotype that people were talking about in the 1980s. You know what I mean? Yeah, it feels a little uncomfortable. Yeah, I just I don't I don't know that that would. I've seen a lot of movies from the 1980s, and a fairly high yeah. number of them feature Japanese people as sort of secondary characters in the movie. And they tend yeah. to truck in weird stereotypes that I didn't really have. No one's thought about yeah, in, I didn't, in 30, I just 40 don't years. I don't know that that's a stereotype. I don't know, than... man. I'm just saying, like, I understand it's a comedy, but it seems very odd. That's all. Yeah. It's, uh, yeah. It's, I know it's well, just for fun I'm... and it's fine. It's just, you know, it doesn't. I'm sure, again, you would experience if, if somebody was Italian watching, they'd yeah. be like, well, Louise is a little bit. Like, because that, she was also written by Jim Jarmusch, and he is not Italian either. You, right. You know what I mean? That sort of stuff, right? So, yeah. I don't know. Uh, yeah. The plot is the either. example I'm using, but that's not the only thing. Right. Like, we can go through a list of I get things, that but I don't want to spend, like, the entire episode going through a list of things that seemed a little off. Like, yeah. Because it's a waste of time. Uh, but. The plum exists also, though, to set up a... Comedic encounter between Sinkley and and Screaming Jay Hawkins. Well, that as, was also improv, so the there was no originally. A, right. there was no comedic encounter there until they improved what to do with it. basically. Yes. which is which is yeah, which but then is shot, funny. but then shot that scene thirty times according to Screaming Jay. <laughs> I am so confused by that, but yeah, yeah, he was he was complaining about having to eat that that plum over and over and over again, uh, but yeah, um, <laughs> yeah. Luis's story, you know, we've already been talking about it. Uh, it's 
it's just very, uh, it feels, you know, I am not a widowed young woman <laughs> right, from, right, from, yes. from Europe, uh, from Italy, uh, traveling across the U.S., uh, but it does, it does seem to engage with the dangers she would encounter in that position uh, in a realistic way. Uh, ending up in the hotel and deciding to share rooms is a very like 1940s, 1930s movie trope then. Right, <laughs> yes, yeah. I think ever happens today. <laughs> but, well, I mean, and, and certainly uh, in 1988, it's not a thing that's happening. Like the movie in that right. way, I think he maybe, um, in other respects, Jim Jarmusch engages in the Q&A thing he did with like the idea that the movie in some ways is sort of out of time. Uh, yeah, it, it like things happen that are not authentic to like the life, real life in 1988, right? Like, right, like that, right? Like that's not a thing. That and I think that's the hotel is a sort that's of that's true to time. a lot of his work. Yeah, right. That's true to a lot of his. Work. I mean, one one could maybe get down and argue that it may not seem weird to Louisa because she would be familiar with American pop culture in which that happens. Yeah, maybe. <laughs> I mean, I, of course, of course. Then she should also be aware of the dangers which she she falls into. That the danger of that sort of thing, uh, in that she is put together with a lady who won't stop talking, which is you know, right, one right, of the comedic yeah. dangers of 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 those sort of two strangers sharing a room tropes. Uh, is that one of them is just very annoying, right? <laughs> um, well, and and it's I you know it's interesting because like Lisa is like a fascinating character in that like mm-hmm. i i wonder if it if it is it do you think it's meant to be to read in part as sort of a state of shock right now cuz like you know she is a, a a recent widow and like i think yes she is she is in a process of grief right uh, um and she's in a strange city and she doesn't know what she's doing and she's the one phone call she's made has been to insist that she that things are fine to whoever she's talking to off screen right um but she's she's still lost here you know and she's particularly just now had this very uh dangerous encounter with the two men from the cafe um who have you know, approached her outside with aims to do something, whether yes. that something is just rob her or worse, uh, aims to do something. So she has run into this hotel to find refuge uh, and run directly into Dee Dee, who is immediately, you know, a, a complete a complete change. Like, you know, not only... Uh, Louisa has a good control of the English language, for instance. Yes. Uh, she, we do not have that that element with her uh but she is still just story-wise this is a very confusing encounter even if she weren't also in the midst of grief and in the midst of fear to run into dd would have been a a weird thing to have happened right right right. and it continues to happen uh yeah so, you know, I don't know that she agrees to share the room out of that weirdness, uh, out of, out of, you know, shock, but, uh, yeah, you know, and she, she recovers from all of that fairly quickly, you know, when they're in the room together, 
Louisa is not venting about what has happened to her. Not that Dee Dee would, you know, ever stop talking to right, allow right. that to happen. But, well, and it's it's also worth but, noting that right, like I mean, Louisa to a certain extent agrees to share the to this room sharing agreement because she has been just really very recently menaced. Right, right? like she doesn't. She right. says, "I don't she want needs, to be alone." She needs a place. Yeah, she needs a place to not be alone. Right, and like Dee Dee yeah. is guaranteed companionship that like means she will yeah. not have to be right like literally she was chased Dee Dee, by dudes basically like yeah. they're scared they're scary dd is non-threatening immediately too you know everything about dd is non-threatening right there, right in the way she's introduced you know she's she's in a spot too obviously but uh louisa is also coming into a situation where she doesn't know how this next interaction is going to happen right well, how it's going to play out uh you know the 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 hotel is a sketchy looking hotel uh but she needs a place to be near other people who aren't threatening her right as she is running from you know uh, why she doesn't just go back into the cafe is is maybe a, a flaw of the script considering that's well, a much closer building well <laughs> like, i mean to be fair they are like blocking <clears throat> the entrance to the cafe right like when she first leaves, well she right? walks out the door to the cafe and they're at they're in the next doorway so you know the way they move right they sort of force her into the street and and right and and, and, she, and then honestly gets, i would have to say that like if i you know this is a bit of a stretch mentally but like if i were in her spot like the cafe didn't do anything to stop that man from sitting down and harassing that's true. her in the first that's place. That's true. They were still. They yeah. are not going to protect her, clearly, because they, like, she was just sitting there minding her own business and was and was her, and was harassed. Right. Without. Right. Uh, no waiter came over to say, or waitress came over to say, like, hey, like, is this person bothering you? Or, in fact, she ended up having to pay for his fucking coffee. Like right, this cafe right. is she, not a refuge yeah. in any in any regards. They're not protecting yeah. their patrons. Yeah, that's that is absolutely true. So you know, she she goes to the hotel trying to find that refuge and is able to find it with Dee Dee, even though it you know it still <laughs> doesn't really work out all that great. But well, and that's the thing uh, is right. Like Louisa could have rented a room on her own, right? Like she has yes. the the resources to do that. We, we and know, it, and in fact, does so. Yeah, yeah, I mean, she, yeah, she ends up paying for it. does not put any money down yeah, when, yeah, yeah. when they check in. But, yeah. like, actively is looking for someone to be right. with her to, to feel safe. To feel safe. Yeah. yeah. To make her feel safe. Yeah. 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 I think that's. In, in that regard, the, the. You know, I think all of these stories feel human, but that yes, one. Absolutely. I think Louisa's story feels the most realistic to me. Yeah, it's it, it's uh, the, I don't know. Yeah, it's definitely the one I felt most connected to. I mean, the you know the first one was was good. I liked it. I enjoyed watching the first story. Uh, Lisa's really was like really engaging. I really liked it. And then yeah. the last one again for me just feels so kind of bog standard. Yeah, I don't feel like it's up to snuff of the other two. I feel like the other two outshine it so dramatically. It feels more. It feels more akin to like, like, you know. Of course, I, I probably, probably, it's probably Steve Buscemi's fault. But I start feeling like I'm watching a like. It's Buscemi and the violence. 
yeah you're about to say it it feels like a tarantino yes exactly yeah. that's yeah. that's what it is and it's yeah. the cursing it's the violence it's the bashimi if you add yeah. it all together in your head i didn't want to do that because it's not as like stupid as a tarantino right. movie in any capacity okay yeah. i don't want to accuse, it's still very jim jarmusch yes i don't want to yeah. accuse jim jarmusch of making a, tar- or a tarantino-esque film because he did not before tarantino ever made a tarantino right, film, by the way but yes but like <laughs> And I, and I and and who know, it probably the, I, the thing probably goes yeah. in the other direction, frankly. But yeah, in the end, we've seen that combination too many times, right? In this world, right? Even if even if yeah. Jarmusch invented it, yeah, we've seen that combination too many times at this point for me to enjoy it anymore. Yeah, I wonder if this is. I'm now. I now I have to go look at the Steve first, Buscemi's. The first uh, instance, the first instance of Steve Buscemi being being injured grievously. I, I'm now screen. literally going to his film his filmography because I was like, I need to know when was the first time that that Tarantino did something horrible to him. Um, oh, I mean, it would have been after this, certainly. Yeah, um, I, I don't have a good grasp on like timelines in filmmaking. Basically, is what I'm saying. Um, which is a thing that people will, yeah. So like, yeah, a few years later you have like Reservoir Dogs, right? And, and that's yeah, where yeah. Tarantino's not making movies until the nineties. Right. So, well, I mean, yeah. yes, yeah, that's true. But like, you know, in my head, I don't know how far away that's only two years. That's only what, two, three years later. Right. Right. So, right. um, but either way that well is poisoned at this point to the point where it, it, re- it reverse it like travels back in time and poisons things that came before it in my mind yeah it's not fair but it's still what it's still the truth uh, they are they are easing us into though too it's jim jarmusch uh steve buscemi gets shot but not killed right he won't be killed on screen until miller's crossing in 90 <laughs> we're working our way up and then and then uh, to, to also i i suppose we we should balance that uh Steve Buscemi is much more likely to die in a uh, in a work by the Coen Brothers than in a Tarantino work as well. <laughs> right, so. but but the but. Coen Brothers work will have a very different flair to it. To yeah, than to than to what what this scene felt like to you. It and feels I get to me like Tarantino saw Steve Buscemi bleeding and cussing and was like, "I've got an idea." Yeah, yeah, I could get that. Uh, I wonder, does he, I think he just, dude, he doesn't die in Pulp Fiction, I don't think. I, dude, I haven't watched a Tarantino film in like yeah. 15 years. No, that's not true. Oh. I watched Django Unchained in a movie theater in Japan at three o'clock in the afternoon with like five people because I was oh, in a I city have, and I had nothing else to do. Yeah. I have discovered Cinemorgue. Uh, a fandom <laughs> wiki dedicated like to the, on-screen the, deaths. The death version of uh, Mr. Skin, I guess, which is terrifying yeah. to think about. They, yes. they probably have crossover events. Uh, but I have I have learned that Steve Buscemi died in an episode of Miami Vice in 1987. Oh, well, there you go. his first on-screen death. Oh, uh, man. I'm so He's accidentally shot by a stray bullet. This exists. Luckily, uh, I typed it in and I couldn't find it, so that's good. It was, it was not until... Uh, the gunshot at the end of Louisa's story that I n- realized these were all meant to be happening concurrently because the establishment of the train 
I thought, oh, that's weird that they reused the same establishment of the train. And then I got distracted thinking about how, uh, at least in Memphis today, that train probably maybe runs once a week. Right, right, right. That, yeah. That's just how Amtrak runs now. It's like, well, they're describing if they're trying to establish like the rhythm of the trains going through with the rhythms of these stories. Uh, Amtrak's very bad at that. <laughs> well, but, and they, but it turns out they were trying to establish that they were all happening at the same time. I uh, I assumed that they work. were. I just because I was like, oh, yeah. I I know what you're. As soon as we started another story, it's like I know what you're going to do here, right? Because that's right. what you do yeah. when you have like stories like this. It's actually more weird if they don't, right? Like it, in a in a story in a system like this. Yeah. But, well, uh, I could listen. I I. I immediately thought something like four rooms where all of these stories aren't happening concurrently, but are acti- happening consecutively. Right. right? I, and I, that's, uh, I'm arguing that four rooms is, a, is the weird one. <laughs> that's probably true. It, it, compared four to what normally happens one, in these situations. But yeah. either way, my, my, my thought, the reason I assumed, like, what actually did throw me is the fact that like in my mind, because the Japanese couple doesn't arrive at the hotel until nighttime, and they spend the whole day walking mm-hmm. around. And Louisa's story, we go the whole time until nighttime. Like somehow, like it was. It took me a while. I like assumed that's what was going to happen, and then it didn't feel like it was going to happen because their timelines didn't seem to line up properly until they got to the hotel. Yeah, and I was like, oh, okay. But like, um, it, it actually threw me for it. I assumed, and then it threw me, and then I was like, oh, okay. This is we're going to hear a gunshot before this is over. Right. Right. Uh. <laughs> and then at the end of the third one, we get, I wonder where Dee Dee is uh, as she's two doors down listening right. to the gunshot, yeah. <laughs> which is very silly too. Uh, but yeah, yeah, the interconnectedness really works. Uh, it really works uh, because of Screaming Jay Hawkins and Sinkley existing as, as the hotel. Right. They are the connecting there. tissue that like brings it all together. Yeah. And, and I, I gotta believe to a certain extent, like, that's got to be part of the commentary, right? It has to be, right? Choosing them as actors and stuff. Like, yeah. One has to believe that it, it, it in the end that it's a commentary on the fact that like that like the black experience in Memphis is sort of exists but is kind of hidden away behind all these different sort of facades that sort of paper over it, right? Like they're the yeah. they're the the tissue that's making all these other experiences even possible, right? Yeah. Yeah. But we also see, um, we see a broader black experience than just say these guys. Right. Yeah. I mean, they're the ones we spend, they're, they are the actors that we spend the most time with. But we also get, with the, with the third one, we get the time in the bar that is an African American bar, right? Because Charlie is, Charlie is nervous. No. Uh, you know he's nervous about other things, but also he he expresses that nervousness by saying, uh, "Is it going to be okay for me to be in there because he's white or whatever?" You know, uh, which will immediately say <laughs> calls him dumb for essentially, right? Right. right? But <laughs> but yeah, it you know this is uh, it exists. You know, even as so much of what we see of Memphis is empty as Mitsuko and June walk through it, right? That emptiness is commentary on Memphis and on the the forced uh, 
urban renewal of Memphis. Right. Yeah. It's 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 really you know. fascinating that in the Q and A, somebody yeah. asks about that, and like Jarvis is like, we didn't have to do anything. Like that's just right. That was Memphis in 1988, dude. Like, yeah. What do you think yeah. was happening it, in 1988? Like, right. <laughs> it exists as a post-apocalyptic wasteland. Yeah, we didn't have to clean has, out any, like, empty out any yeah. streets. This is just what it looked like. All those yeah. businesses yeah. that were closed were just closed. And you know, the one comment in the the bonus feature from the guy who works for, or is the co-founder of the Civil Rights Museum, uh, uh. Darmy Bailey, uh, you know, he points out that 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 is a uh, that is an aspect of desegregation. Desegregation was weaponized to kill black neighborhoods in Memphis, right? Uh, by uh, by eliminating the need for black business owners. Uh, or the possibility of black business. Well, yeah, Me- once, Memphis is once, here an example yeah. for like countless cities right, across right, right. America, right? Like, right. I mean, right. and you and know, that's, you know, where where I've talked about in the past, I talk about it specifically with school desegregation. In that, you know, when when urban schools desegregated, many of the schools in the African American neighborhoods had black leadership, uh, had ma- vast majority black uh, administrators and teachers, and right. then. Uh, desegregation put white people in those positions of power and essentially, you know, uh, neutered black education. And that's something desegregation was weaponized to do across the country as well. Right. I mean, Uh, yeah, yeah. There's a, there's a whole host of, 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 you know, things in that sort of category. Right. Um, yeah. But, uh, I like, I like, uh, Bailey's commentary uh, talking about the the movie being a good introduction to the culture of Memphis uh, and Elvis as the embodiment of the separation of cultures that that black folks in in even in Memphis black people never connected with Elvis <laughs> that, you know which which makes even more sense in Memphis right because the black folks in Memphis know everybody Elvis was stealing music from <laughs> right right so, yeah absolutely yeah. Yeah, know all the guys who wrote his songs, even when they weren't outright stolen. <laughs> My other favorite bit of of Bailey's talk in that Memphis store bonus feature is uh, an introduction to the uh, socialism of Dr. King that we don't get very often, <laughs> right? In in general history, either. So, yeah. Uh, uh, but yeah, yeah. It's just a it's a really great movie. Um, this is the first yeah. Jim Jarmusch movie in color. There's the financial aspect of that. He had the money to shoot in color, but he, he chooses the color very, very particularly here too. And the way he shoots and, you know, the empty streets are part of this, but a lot of his shots of Memphis feel like an Edward Hopper movie, right? Just yeah. the way things are framed, uh, or an Edward Hopper painting, not a movie, obviously, but yeah, like the way, the way things are framed. I, I, yeah, I would. Yeah, yeah. certainly. There's a sort of like he has a sort of he doesn't just like do vignettes in in a like because obviously these stories are sort of like that. But like, yeah, there's kind of a yeah, it does feel like your your characters are walking onto a painting, right, or are walking onto a, a right. framed like 
you know what I mean? Like things are set up in that very sort of linear capacity every time, right? Like the car pulls into or the characters walk into a sort of like previously established sort of like still scene, right? Right, right, yeah. Yeah, and the empty streets help with that, right? Yes. You know, the, shot, the shot from the corner where we have the, the arcade cafe in the foreground and we see the, the hotel in the background with the sign painted on the edge advertising the arcade and pointing <laughs> with right. the arrow pointing right at it. You know, that's a, you know, if it, were, if it were nighttime and there were a single light on in the hotel, that would be an Edward Hopper painting pretty, pretty right. directly. But, <laughs> but yeah, um, you know, it, it's it's colored like a hopper. It it, it ex- exhibits the isolation that hopper paintings often exhibit without without cribbing anything directly from hopper. Right. right? Yeah. No. Get... Yeah. It's it's not. It doesn't have any like oh like this is scene for scene like you know this is image for image yeah. or anything like that. But it certainly right. has the color dynamics of like you know doing things like having like a single character in like bright red clothes on a otherwise yeah. fairly drab background and stuff like right 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 that that sort of stuff yeah. it it does feel like that's what yeah, Jarvis still, has in mind right yeah still exhibits that same social isolation without without having like shots through windows which is right, right, right. a lot right <laughs> either right. a person inside looking out or or outside looking in uh but yeah, yeah. certainly you you'll notice that like you know a thing that like Darvish is doing it with color, right? Is like he'll have, yeah, the characters sort of stay. It sort of gives the characters a sense of depth that perhaps the the scenery no longer has because it has been sort of deprived yeah. of that. Like especially right. since since everywhere they're going is essentially already dead. Yeah, but the characters yeah. are alive and moving through it. They 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 tend to demonstrate that with like their their clothing and their sort of the other things that they. They have right. on them and with it, like you know, the 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 you know, the Japanese couple is carrying that bright red suitcase that pops really like intensely, uh, and their clothes are fairly like stand out fairly well as well. But I mean, you know, like the 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 you know, June is wearing like very what would if it weren't put against a, a nearly like completely dry background would be a relatively not stand out outfit in the sense that it's not like bright colors or anything but it does stand out because it's like right. he's walking in front of like basically beige buildings right yeah but it also stands out because you know he's got the pompadour no so, no like, i know yeah. i i just meant like color wise right it, it only yes, color wise it's right. not that like intense but like you know louisa is is walking around in actually like pretty brightly colored clothing and and you right. know it's sort of it's interesting that way it, it, there's a lot of play with color like jim Jarmusch takes to the introduction of having color to play with extremely well. Right. He uses it. Right. He doesn't, it's not just like, oh, well, it's in color now, which is a thing that we have seen happen, right, with black and white, uh, yeah. previously black and white directors, where they like they get color and they don't really like necessarily run with it. Well, he definitely runs with it. He uses it to great yeah. effect. Right. Yeah, without being overbearing. You know, right, yeah, it doesn't get from like absurd or anything, yeah. In that Q and A, we also hear him talking about the soundtrack and talking about the importance of uh, sound and image. In the fact that when you're dealing with a sound picture, you are that's fifty percent of the information is what you hear, right? Not just you know, and the other half being what you see. Uh, you know, and coming off of <laughs> coming off of the uh, uh, brackage box set that, uh, <laughs> yeah. 
like, thank you. Thank you for saying that. Uh, I could use more sound. Um, with yeah, baggage, I mean, as I said repeatedly, yeah. but yeah, that, that, that but is yeah. a, I mean, I guess in that sense, right. Not to, to not to re, uh, to relitigate brackage but right like yeah brackage is right in one sense in the sense that he's like well i mean i cut out the thing that was extraneous uh to what i'm trying to do here because if i put in sound it's half of the experience right but it's it also makes things a lot easier to watch so you know hard to say brackage wanted the visual to be 100 percent of the experience and and did that successfully i still don't know what steve buscemi was doing when he was introduced why why did he? Why did he have the fishing line stuck in the sign of the book? Of the, like I, he had been practicing casting in his downtime or it's something. It's possible. It could <laughs> be anything. It like, who knows? I I was leaning towards he was like trying to get something. Like something was stuck up there or yeah. something like that. In my head, I was like, I don't know. It, who who knows? Yeah. Who knows? Um. I mentioned earlier that maybe Louisa is okay with the room sharing because uh, because of a, an implied familiarity with older American films. Uh, uh-huh. You know, obviously we get nothing, we get nothing, you know, in the text su- to suggest that. We, right. get, we get that moment of subtext. But there's another moment of subtext that maybe suggests that in that when they hear the gunshot, Louisa says, maybe it's a thirty-eight. And it is a thirty-eight, and that would suggest maybe a familiarity with like gangster films of the past, right? That I mean, our choices are either a familiarity with gangster films or an implication that like Louisa has like a much more complex backstory than the movie necessarily yeah. engages with. Right. Yeah. Maybe. Maybe. Yeah. There's. There's a lot of instances. Maybe it's implying she's a gangster. That's uh, what I mean. It's like it, it, it could be implying yeah. a lot of so. different things about uh, Louisa's right. life, and like the movie, and the movie just sort of leaves that alone, right? It's like, well, she says things that, like, she says that, which kind of like triggers things in our head, but it's not like a thing we are going to spend a lot of time. The movie's not going to talk about it. You know what I mean? Um, yeah. And that's okay because, yeah. like, you know, it, it it's a mystery train. Everybody's headed in the same direction but in their own compartments. Right. That's uh, what a train does, I guess. Uh, <laughs> a very not, cr- I don't not have crowded it. train. Yeah, yeah. I don't I don't have experience with trains. I live in Columbus, Ohio. We don't have them here. So I rode on a train know. yesterday. Uh, well, good job. It was lovely. Yeah, thanks. Actually, it wasn't. Yeah. Uh, it was not the train's fault. It was the <laughs> fact that I, on the way there, it was lovely. On the way back, was not because it's not the train's fault that it was like um, Friday at like peak tri- travel time. So like, it was very very it's crowded, such. and I was very much like, I want to get off this train. It's so crowded. I'm so uncomfortable. I'm not used to having people be close this close to me all the time. I really the the bonus features on this are very silly to me. Uh, the Q and A is very silly to me. Yeah, uh, I love that Jim Jarmusch like... introduces it by saying that he doesn't like to do commentaries on his own films because he doesn't like to revisit his own films. Yeah, he doesn't like that. He's, I haven't uh, watched any of these movies. Like the idea that he has yeah. never he's never seen his own movie since he released it is yeah. is interesting to think about. You know, it's yeah. just a, and then, it's fascinating. And then spending the first few minutes establishing time and place in a very particular way by yes. reading all of the headlines of the New York Times that <laughs> yes, morning. Yes, <laughs> it's very strange. I like it, though. I like it a lot because yeah. it, like, it is – leave it up to somebody like Jim Jarmusch to be like as Jim Jarmushy as possible. 
yeah. of all aspects yeah. of everything he does. And it feels fitting, right? I would be... Yeah. He's a delightful weirdo. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> he's also, like, I was... Yeah, he's just... Yeah, he is. And, like, I I admire his his... The intensity with which he likes the things he likes. Yeah. Is very admirable to me. Uh, it's something I like. Yes. He is uh, very, very into this, like, this particular part of musical history. And, and yeah, it's just, it's neat. Yeah. It's a neat thing. And, yeah, honestly, we only ever get Jim telling us a story about it. Um, but his respect for Screaming Jay Hawkins in that he discovers that Hawkins did not own the rights to I Put a Spell on You. So the licensing fee they paid for Stranger Than Paradise did not go to him. So once the movie made enough money, Jarmusch tracked him down to make sure he got paid right. in equal amount to what the licensing fee was. And then over that amount, when the movie did it better, um, you know, essentially giving him a cut of the profits of the movie right. because that song is integral to that movie, right? Right, and, and it, putting and him into this movie, and his sense of justice in that is is very, yes, is admirable. Yes, exactly. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. I'm trying to think of what word. Yes, exactly. He's we would he cares about that sort of thing, and I think that's really kind yeah. of amazing. Yeah, in a way that we haven't. You know, I don't. I don't think we've. We don't have much instances of uh, other directors committing injustice. Uh, in no, the opposite no, to no. That. But, <laughs> but like, but, but like stories this is of an, someone an active where he's like, "Oh, I, there yeah. is an injustice that I must yeah. correct about right. what's happening right. here." Yes. Uh, and then yeah, we get the bonus feature that's as excerpts from the documentary on Screaming Jay Hawkins from two thousand one. Um, where we get all of those stories expounded upon and the thing I mentioned earlier about Hawkins' story about eating that plum 30 times. Uh, and then they use the first take, which, you know, it's a silly a silly comment about movie making. Right. <laughs> um, but also Jarmusch taking 30 takes, which I imagine is also a thing he was only able to do because of the JBC money. Uh, absolutely, so, yeah, absolutely. You know, yeah. You know, nowadays, right, like, it's all about like time budgets, right? But like, yeah, one one wonders if like the 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 revelation of having that much money to work with was kind of mind blowing to a certain extent. Yeah, and I've already mentioned you know so much of what I love about the last bonus feature, the Memphis tour, the 2010 document documentary looking at, uh, uh, I would suppose produced for the Criterion release here, uh, though I didn't see the copyright mark on it. Um. But that timing would work out. Mystery, this this Criterion release would have been 2010. Um, but looking at looking at locations um, and just seeing a picture of Memphis, what had changed in Memphis in those ten years or twenty years? You know, uh, you know, we see uh, we see a city that is being forced gentrified, and even more of the buildings that we experienced in the build in the movie have now been torn down. Right. Right. Uh, when he goes to, when he goes to the arcade restaurant, uh, and we get the same establishing shot of the corner, uh, and I thought, uh, and I noticed that the hotel was gone. Uh, I thought, well, there's no good story there. Uh, right. <laughs> and then we we never get a really really get a story about it at all, 
but he goes to the location of the hotel and it's just it's a grassy lot with a building that's way set back that was probably behind the hotel originally right. and wasn't fresh built uh but it's got this big wooden patio coming off of it and no one mentions it but i i am certain that that was a cocktail bar aimed at hipsters in 2010 yes. yeah <laughs> Uh, and maybe that's my own prejudice boiling up. No, you're probably it, right. But, but yeah. And the stories about, you know, stacks having been torn down in that interim as well and never getting preserved properly um, so that the people from stacks that we talked to, uh, Novella Smith-Arnold, uh, for instance, who is also credited uh, in her in her little Chiron pop-up, Establishing who she is, also credited as uh, doing the Memphis casting for Mystery Train and Minister to the Imprisoned. Uh, just interesting that they put that on. I bet it was was something she requested that they right. put on there. Uh, but yeah, hearing from the Stax people about, you know, just... Stax only existed because of segregation, and then the city did not did not uh, maintain it historically in the way that Sun was was historically maintained, right? Right. Uh, and it's it's just as important to the foundations of rock and roll as as Sun is, if not more so. So, yeah. Uh, but yeah, all great, all great information from from all three of the bonus features. Uh, even if Jim Jarmusch talks very slowly. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, I, I, you warned me ahead of time, and so I didn't even bother. I just listened to him at one and a half speed. Uh, I, I was like, well, I'm not going to find out. Like, I'm just going to take uh, Adam's word for it and just, like, let it yeah. roll at one and a half and call it a day. I I actually, the q and I popped up to, to straight 2X at, at one I was, point. I was comfortable just, uh, at one and a and half. Was, I thought one yeah. and a half felt very natural. Um, yeah. I suspect 2X still felt fairly natural, I'll be honest. I, I suspect honest, for me, but... two would have been would have felt sped up, whereas one and a half yeah. felt just right. So thank you to uh, the designers of the Criterion Channel. Uh, most of what you do is bad, and oh, I don't understand do why you put job, eight. But thank you on the web <laughs> interface only having yeah a time feature, a speed feature, yeah, which they don't right. have on the on the um, on the app which is is annoying i really really wish it because i yeah i don't really like sitting at my computer to watch movies i would much rather do that other places understanding that uh and we use we used it for the bonus features here but why would a company building a prestige movie app but it, I think offer the option to play it quicker. I think that it's just d- an artifact just... of like they just probably yeah. bought the web player interface like whole cloth from somebody who already like makes it and like he it just yeah. happens to have that feature. I don't know. I've used it more than once though. This is yeah. not the first time I have used the let's go faster feature. Um, it, you I know, mean, the I audio tr- only bonus features. There's very little reason not to. I don't know. I just find it weird that like we get the speed up function in Criterion Channel, but not uh, a closed captioning button that we can hit on the I, fly. Well, <laughs> I've often wondered like, about. I have to assume that yeah, they just like hard encoded those all in there, and it's really. Yeah. I really wish they it was actually controllable. I I would just like it to be controllable the way it is on other websites where I could just make it bigger. Yeah. 
Oh, yeah. If I could just like up the, you know, because most sites, right, because it, it's a separate file that, that, that comes in, you can control it. I don't need to turn it off, but what I would like to do is make the letters bigger because I am getting <laughs> older, and it would be nice to yes. be able to read it from the distance that my couch is to my TV. You'll just have to buy a larger television pad. Or we, like some sort of goggles that like magnify. I know they're called glasses, but um, I imagine I would need something more significant than regular ga- glasses because my doctor tells me I don't need glasses. But the TV's telling me I do. Yeah, but that's what re- bifocal reading glasses are designed for that sort of thing. Right, right? but when Just your doctor tells you you bottom, don't need so. those things and won't give them to that's you fair. because you don't need them, uh, you're in a bit of a bind, and that's what binoculars were invented for, which is what I was actually describing. <laughs> <There you> go. <laughs> G- uh, <laughs> goggles that make things bigger are binoculars. Yes. That's fair. That's fair. <laughs> Uh. Well, Pat, is there anything else we want to say about no, Mystery I, Train? No, I, I just like to, re- you know, reiterate. I really do. I like. I didn't. It's a really I didn't fun movie. Know this? Like it's, before we started the yeah. Criterion Collection, I didn't know that I liked Jim Jarmusch. Mainly because, yeah. like, frankly, I didn't know anything about him. But like, right. He's. I really like his work, and like, this is just another example of like another work that I really enjoyed watching. I've consistently impressed by the things I've seen of his and I don't know it sounds like a weird thing to say because it's not like it's not like people don't know that he's a good director or something like that right but like I would have never encountered Jim I don't know that I would have ever encountered Jim Jarmusch without without this right like it's just one he's just an example of directors that would have passed by me because I Mm -hmm. wasn't seeking out his work like and I just think that's just an interesting thing to think about sometimes. Like, wow, like I, I would not have encountered this if it weren't for this. And I really sometimes this this uh, thing we do here makes me really happy that it introduces me to things yeah. that I wouldn't have seen otherwise. Well, good news and bad news. Okay, uh, we do have two more Jim Jarmusch movies, and uh, what they're terrible. Everybody hates them. No. I don't know. Well, I don't. Dead- where's the bad news? I don't understand. <laughs> Dead Man, Dead Man does star Johnny Depp, so we have that to deal with. Uh, but well, yeah, uh, that's that's rough. Uh, but we will we will watch that and Ghost Dog, which I'm very much looking forward to. I love Ghost Dog. Uh, but uh, the bad news is Dead Man is fine nine nineteen, and Ghost Dog is fine ten fifty. I mean, there's almost so. no chance I'm going to live that long. So I don't <laughs> right, know. Right. I guess you'll do it with one of my children. I don't. I don't know. Yes. Ah. Uh, one of your children and the robot I build to replace myself. <laughs> right, right. Yeah, it's, just, it's like, well, so wait, if we, it, you know, every so often they talk about like those like fake AIs that are like the AIs that they've like, oh, well, we'll build an AI that can like replicate you based on your like Twitter feed or whatever. It can yeah. like, pretend to be you on Twitter, but we just like hook two of those up talking to each other about the movies. Absolutely. Be beautiful. Yeah, that's all we need. Yeah. It'll be perfect. So yeah, we've been talking about Mystery Train Jim Jarmusch from 1989. Next week, oh joy, it's another Michelangelo Antonioni film. We haven't had an Antonioni film in a long time, uh, and I've been very happy about it because I do not like <laughs> Antonio. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, it's pretty unanimous. So, but we are we are legally bound to give it a fair shot. That's the rules. Uh, I don't know if you've read our contract. I uh, with the boulder that we're pushing up a hill, but um. yeah, uh, 
we watched Le Clisse at Spine 276. That was our last one. Uh, and I did like Le Clisse better than L'Aventura, which was the first one we saw. Right, but like we talked about this early. at the time. You are willing to but, give... Yeah. Now I I, I gave him a little my, more credit than you were willing to. Give. I <laughs> yes. I have bound myself to my belief that I have to go in and give it a fair shake. I have not uh, ever adopted your willingness to like accept marginally better as something <laughs> worth actually commenting on. Oh, this isn't complete trash as much as the last one was complete trash. Uh, therefore, it is a better film. I think that like at some points of degrees on the scale of bullshit. You no longer have to believe it. The 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 the, the amount that it is better is worth worth acknowledging. In any case, it is Red Desert from 1960. Not really looking forward to it, uh, but we'll survive, I'm sure. And always pushing forward through this never-ending, ever forward. We cannot stop. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Thank you so much for listening, to Lost in Criterion. I'm as always, Lee Adam Glass. With me as always, John Patrick Oatart Oregon. And we'll see you next time. Bye. Bye. been lost in criterion hosted by me adam glass find me on twitter at the adam glass my co-host is john patrick obertory dorgan you can find him on twitter at j patrick dorgan big thanks to jonathan hape for our theme song check him out at jonathanhape.bandcamp.com or hear more from him on any streaming service also thanks to all our patreon supporters itunes reviewers and redbubble customers and hey thank you for listening